Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, September 29th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now news you can use if you can use useless news. FBI Director James Comey has stood silent and stalwart through all of the Hillary Clinton email scandal fallout. So he gave a press conference, which is unusual. He announced her crimes did not rise to the level of prosecution. Then he testified before Congress, saying a version of her crimes did not rise to the level of prosecution about 55 different times. But he has been laconic until today, when he lashed out at those who would compare him to members of the genus Mustela. You can call us wrong, but don't call us weasels. We are not weasels. In fact, he went on to say, we do not carry water for one side or the other. He is not a weasel. He is not a carrier of water. Director Comey very clearly wants you to know he specifically is not an otter. The famous waterborne weasel, Comey, not an otter. In other news, both biting and animalistic, an Australian man was hospitalized after a venomous snake bit him on the penis again. Yeah, it's the again I'm fixated on, isn't it? The itsy-bitsy, potentially life-threatening spider came up the toilet spout and down rained the screams to freak the neighbors out. <laughs> the poor guy. Oh, well, you know what they say. Venomous spider bites you on the penis once, shame on you. Venomous spider bites you on the penis twice, shame on me. The man said his goal, modest though it seems, is to go a week or two without a venomous spider biting him on the penis. He's not going to let the spiders win. He's going to be going out in public. He's going to be pursuing his passion of sticking his penis into the nests of venomous spiders. Now, with the Latino vote expected to be quite large in this election, one out of nine voters, it is expected. The Clinton campaign has taken out over 2,500 Spanish language ads, and that's not even counting local ad buys. This is according to the Center for Public Integrity. The Clinton campaign is advertising in Spanish heavily in Colorado, Florida, and Nevada, where an estimated one out of eight pro-Clinton ads are in Spanish. Donald Trump and his campaigns have spent, according to this same report on Spanish-language television commercials, zero dollars. They have no Spanish-language ads, though they did test market some. Ensalada de Taco did not test well. Gordo el Cerdito also surprisingly not playing well with Spanish speakers. The Spaniards, I believe he calls them. Perhaps the Trump campaign is just hoping to say some dumb stuff in English And then Tim Kaine will translate it into Espanol in a stump speech. And this has been news you might be able to use if you can use some useless news. Speaking of the Miss Universe contra temp, we have team coverage of that in the spiel. But first, Malcolm Gladwell, host of the Panoply podcast, Revisionist History, stops by and we get all eclectic. (laughs) 
Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History is one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. It is from the Panoply Network. I need to disclose that. I also am bragging a little bit. It, I believe, takes the idea of nonfiction reporting and applies it to audio in a new way. It makes an argument. It fleshes this argument out with examples. Great print essays do this all the time. But think about audio, This American Life, or other kinds of nonfiction. It usually means documentary, not argument. This is an argument with sounds and clips and reporting. Take the episode called Hallelujah. In that, Malcolm takes the song by that name, by Leonard Cohen. He compares it to an Elvis Costello song, Deportees Club. He likens each musician to a visual artist, Picasso and Cezanne, and presents a theory about the nature of creativity. Sometimes creativity is a burst, other times it's a process. Well, let's get into the process, all of this, with Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. Thank you for coming by, Malcolm. Not at all. I want to ask you about your habits of mind, the craft, the types of story you're attracted to. But first, I want to start with where you get your ideas, which is way too general a question. So I would assume that, like all humans, there are some things that you seek out and encounter because they bring you joy and they're part of your life. And maybe we saw this in one of the episodes where you talk about that Elvis Costello song. Deportees Club, yes. The Deportees Club. So I would assume that that was something where you weren't perhaps looking for a phenomenon to fit a theory. You're just experiencing so much in your life. And when you listen to a song and know about it, you start thinking about it. And maybe it made you think of something else and spark something else. But I could be wrong. Was that the process with that song and how it fit into that episode? I had read years ago and been fascinated by the work of David Gelson, the economist, who had looked at these various different kinds of creativity. That was the theory at the heart of that show. and then. I always loved Deportees Club and didn't realize all I knew was this version my friend Bruce had given me. And it wasn't until last year, 20 years after I first heard that song, that I realized he had done an earlier version. Because someone randomly gave me the Elvis Costello album years before on which the initial version of that played. And I, I just forgotten about it. And then I realized, oh my God, he did an earlier version. And the earlier version is terrible, even though the later version is my favorite song ever. Yeah. So at that point, I was like, oh, I just this is just too much fun. This would be a great episode. So as soon as you realize that fact about the Costello song, it fit into the theory, the notion, the idea that you already had in your head. You, you kind of slipped it into a broader umbrella of yeah, a way to look at the world. it happen right away. I mean, a lot of the times, these two things are in parallel. So- One of my jobs as a writer is to keep up with, you know, theory making, you know, ways of organizing experience and things. One of my jobs as a writer is to collect stories. And so I kind of, I do them in tandem and then I see if I can make connections. Sometimes I can't. Right. And sometimes I can. So it's not a, there isn't a kind of formal process. It's just two buckets in my head. The fun bucket is the Story, finding the great stories. But sometimes learning about the theory and the way to organize the world is fun in and of of itself. And you go, aha. For some of these episodes, did you have that theory that you wanted to explore? And then because you were doing the podcast, you cast out to find the specifics that informed how to illustrate that theory. Yeah, it sometimes works that way. More often works the other way. I don't really know. I don't have a system. So I kind of mull things over for a long time and then... It's all about how to tell the story. Yes. And I just find it very useful when you tell a story 
this actually goes back, I've told this story many times, goes back when I was a kid, I was, uh, I, like most kids, obsessed with board games. And I had a rule, which was, or card games, that whenever we were playing a board game or a card game with a kid, with some kid who had never played the game before, I was the one who would explain the rules. No one else got to explain the rules. Why? Because the way everyone else explains the rules, including Parker Brothers, the maker of board games, it just drove me crazy. They didn't know how to explain. They didn't even know how to explain their own game, right? <laughs> and I remember being like eight years old and just being furious at the yeah. stupidity of the people. These instructions for Monopoly make no sense. That is the best example. And the proof of that is that no one, there's no set of rules for Monopoly. And three years ago, they had to do a branding campaign, which was essentially, let's just all agree on the rules. Do you remember that? And by the way, the rules, once you do read them and understand them, also make no sense. No. They have the wrong, just a little tangent here. The fundamental problem with Monopoly, and I say this as a kid who played hundreds of Monopoly games, and I defy anyone to quarrel with me on this. The fundamental problem with Monopoly is there's too much money in the game. Yes, it doesn't end. That well, no, no, no. That's not the reason. Yes. Though that is a that's that why is it doesn't end. Effect. Because it's a side effect much. of that. But the main reason why it's a problem that there's too much money is that in the beginning, you should be having to make difficult decisions about whether you want to buy the property you've landed on. Instead, you just buy them yes. because you can. So what's the point? Yeah. The, point the whole point of Monopoly is you land on Marvin Gardens, you should have to say, all right, does Marvin Gardens conform to my notion of how, it, how best to win this game? Unless you have to go through that process at the age of nine, the game is meaningless. Yes. Yeah. And and Mar Marvin Gardens is an okay property. The second ones on each strip are the good ones because the rents yes, are the same. You higher. get more rents, yeah. but it costs the same to build. I've actually read Game Theory on Monopoly, which is great, except it doesn't matter because there's too much money in too the game. Too much money in the game. Yeah. We played uh, with zero dollars. How would you decide whether it's to buy? It's so much better. It's so much better. You So we, you, obviously, we allowed you to go into debt mm -hmm. and we allowed every conceivable form of alternate financing. I can sell you anything I want. So what we would do is we would sell options by the truckload. So I would say, if you had a pre-existing interest in Marvin Gardens mm -hmm. and the yellow set, then you could buy from me the option to buy those properties if I landed on them before I landed on them. Okay. Right. So the fact that I start with no money, I can... I can go into debt, so that's fine. I can owe the bank three, four hundred dollars. I gradually accumulate it just by going around the board. Every decision about what a property to buy is a considered decision, and I am forced into alternate forms of financing. It's like real real estate. Yeah. Did the you offer? Did you offer reverse mortgages? Did you profit on payday lending? We, I mean, the the possibilities we, are endless. Did you have we, Fannie Mae on the table? We, we had one of the things we is a lot. Many people did this was. You can assist me in building properties for mm -hmm. a share of the revenue. That makes total can sense. Can I brand my name on it and take all the credit <laughs> and run for president? <laughs> yeah, we didn't go that far. Anyway, but my point is the problem with the monopoly rules was that they never conceptualized – and the rules in general is the first line of any instruction should be the purpose of this game is X, mm -hmm. right? And in insane numbers of times, they don't tell you what the purpose is. And until you do that, then the rules make no sense. So from the very beginning, I was obsessed with this notion that the only way to tell a story correctly was at some point to pause and give a grand conceptual 
vision of the story. Yes. This story Here is, is about... Here is why you're listening to yes, this. Yes, yes. And so, when they're narratives, it's an arc and a character, but you're making arguments, but that is really helpful. Yeah. So we know what the arguments are. This I learned this lesson at, literally at eight, and I, I'm still obsessing over this lesson today at 53. You're something of both an aphorism or phrase minter and collector. And I think that's really important because if you have an idea in the middle, it's important that that idea, just like a character should have a really good name, Jack Reacher, that mm-hmm. idea, the the phrasing of it really sings. And did you learn that along the way? Or was that like a, a young boy playing Monopoly always apparent to you? Well, you know, I, my, my, the first thing I wanted to, do, the thing I always wanted to be growing up was in, to be in advertising. Mm-hmm. The idea of selling an idea or a concept or something in a kind of powerful, succinct, catchy way is something I've always been obsessed with. My childhood was spent cutting uh, car ads out of magazines, both the, because I was obsessed with cars, but also I realize now what I was really obsessed with with car, was car advertising. The tagline? Not just, just the whole idea of how you would sell... I mean, I was I would write away when I was uh, thirteen years old. I wrote away to every car company in the world and got a brochure. I've I have I sadly some of them got thrown out, but I had at one point brochures on every car made in nineteen seventy five, with the exception of the Russian Zill. I had stacks of them, and they were almost more meaningful to me than the car itself. What interested me was how you packaged and sold and presented the idea of a car to your audience that and the the imagery around to this day my my reaction to bmws is formed by my consumption of bmw advertising in the mid 70s and i could say that of all of these brands and my i relate to them when i see the cars on the street from that era i think of the brochure because i never we were out in the country i never saw these cars i mean I was collecting brochures on cars, which on those rare occasions when I would, my dad would take me to Toronto to go to the museum, I wouldn't go in the museum. I would sit outside on the steps because to me, the story was all these cars that I had never seen in the flesh. They were like, this is unbelievable. It's like, there's nothing possibly inside of the museum that's more interesting to me than seeing a Maserati. I'd never seen a Maserati, you know, like, so yeah. I mean. That was that was how I experienced the world back then. So I think that's probably stayed with me. What was the worst branded car you came across? I'm sure uh, some of these like Soviet bloc countries, they just didn't really appeal to you and your sensibilities no, as a 13-year-old Canadian. I don't think I make, I pass judgment. The best, I loved the way uh, Mercedes had beautiful brochures back then. B&W, their brochures were, their, were extraordinarily BMW-ish. They were these like logical, you know, they were designed by engineers. <laughs> there was German engineering behind the there brochure. Was, yeah, they were so like, they were obsessed with this notion about how uh, with a BMW, uh, form follows function. And to a 11-year-old or a 12-year-old, I forget how old I was. This I think it was 12. That phrase, form follows function, I must have spent months mulling that over. What did it mean? How did it express it in my own life? Did form follow function in the Gladwell household? I mean, (laughs) like all of these things. So I I wasn't looking for bad ones. I was kind of just fascinated by all the, the extraordinary variety. I think BMW now, their spokesperson is John Hamm, who played Don Draper. 
And I wonder Um, if that's a good idea, because on the one hand, he's a suave guy, or at least his character was. On the other hand, we associate him with a lying advertising man. On the third hand, is it just lazy at the advertising agency where they're like, who's the coolest guy in the world? Oh, the guy who made our profession seem glorious. I mean, this is all this is a part of a larger conversation among Carnats about how about the decline of BMW, Um, you know, that they no longer want to be the driver's car. And the idea that they would pick someone, a fictional uh, ad guy, as their spokesman is just so depressing to me. Do you think in general, I've done a 180 on this, I used to think it was foolish to have a set of numbers as the model of your car, but now I think it's timeless. And when I think of cars that have names, some of them work, but some of them are undone by their by their name uh, after a while. Like Buick's not a bad car, it just speaks of the 70s and a Chevy Impala. I mean, we've forgotten that an Impala is an actual animal, but if it was, I don't know, if it was the Chevy 723X, I think it would have a stronger chance of being timeless. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're back at the best one was Volvo's in the 70s. There was an actual logic that is that the, as I, if I'm remembering this correctly, it was three numbers. It was a, Mm. so a 244, one of them is the doors. One of them is the series and one of them is the is the um like cylinders v8 engine v6 yeah, yeah. i think that's and, and so imagine that's driving right. that volvo you say that volvo on american highway which is named in a similar system that the odd roads are north south and the even roads are east west and if it starts with an even number it's a spur road and if it starts with yeah. an odd that's great yeah no there is a <laughs> there is a uh, for this slightly spectrumy <laughs> intellect that well, is we great. forget i was talking sort of so i i recently bought a 13 year old bmw Basically, the last analog year of BMW is 2000, and it's the early aughts. So I bought a 2003 BMW, and I was driving on the weekend, and I was struck by it's you know it is obviously profoundly different from driving a contemporary car, as would be the case if I one from the 80s or 90s. But you realize that that the, it, driving a car from that from the analog era is a surprisingly physical act. It's actually tiring. Is it well? Do you drive stick? It's stick. Yeah, it has to be. It's stick. got um, hydraulic steering, not ele- electric steering, and also the steering feel is heavy. So you can't. You need to have two hands on the wheel. I mean, you realize that driving is conceived of for its for for its first 75, 80 years as a masculine experience. One requiring, I mean, if you go back earlier, well, at least that idea's time of masculinity. Yes. 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 Exactly. Now. That whole notion has been stripped away, and what what you draw, what you feel when you drive a contemporary automobile, is almost a feminized notion of driving, where the input is cognitive and not. But it's even even the cognitive input is being re- reduced, but the physical input is gone, right? And that has happened in variety. So when we're talking about naming of things, you know, the engineer it was the male engineers in Stuttgart who liked to call their cars after numbers, right? As the male engineer in Stuttgart's day recedes and he's replaced by someone else who might well be a woman and not an engineer or what have you, then the numbers go away as well. Right. Or, or replaced by someone whose job it is to brand the car. Yeah, right. exactly. And, and, you know, this fits in, I think, a general societal feeling of powerlessness, which they say is a really important strain going on driving this election, in that our technology, we used to make our technology work. And then maybe there was a time where it's being sold as it works for us. But it's really just a mystery at a remove. I have no idea how this iPod plays revisionist history, right? There used to be, I mean, 
An engineer could tell you how AM radio signals worked or a phonograph. We could physically see the grooves. And so I think we, again, it seems like we don't own the things that are supposed to be working for us. Yeah. And we feel disconnected. You know, the this was a, a riff that I wanted to do when I did. I did a piece on school shootings for The New Yorker about a year and a half ago. This, it was all a story about one case, a yeah. kid who was caught before he actually- Minnesota? Mi- yeah, yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. I wasn't even sure actually that he was going to follow through on it. But what he was, was the kid who liked to build bombs in his basement. Right? And there is an era in America where that was normal, where what a certain kind of teenage boy did was get a chemistry set and blow up stuff in his basement. And an insane numbers of people who go on to be highly successful physicists or engineers or what have you, that's what they're doing when they're 13. And it's considered entirely normal for the for the 13-year-old to want to blow things up. Mm-hmm. No one looks askance. Now, if, if your 13-year-old wants to blow things up, you freak out, right? That's not normal anymore. But my question is, what happens to that impulse when it, is, when it is, becomes illegitimate? And I wondered when I was doing this case of this kid in Minnesota, whether that was 95% of the story, that he was indulging in this fantasy. And 50 years ago, that fantasy has an outlet that's entirely legitimate. All of the people around it would say, that's fantastic. And you should go and be an engineer. And maybe you can go and work for like NASA and like really know how to like, you know, blah. Now it's like, oh, yeah, it's weird. Blah, blah. And the only place that this kid who was a, he was a little bit on this, he's a, on the spectrum and he's a little bit his interests are a little bit weird to begin with. Yeah, which with. really hurt him in the police interrogation, as hurt I remember him. the story, yeah. But the only place he can go to kind of indulge this fantasy is the dark parts of the internet that are celebrating illicit bombings. Yeah. Right? So, like, in a certain sense, I don't want to say we asked for it, but we kind of did. We don't want to own up to the fact that teenage boys have these kinds of impulses. And if I might extend this theorizing one step further— in every generation except ours and the one before, that boy goes into the army. Yeah. Right? And he he has four years or whatever where he is either actually killing people or he's getting the whole blowing things up, shooting things out of his system. Right? We don't have that anymore. So in a certain sense, am I surprised in a world that has become as sort of demilitarized as ours has, that we don't see these kinds of behaviors pop up in a thoroughly malignant form in other in other areas. I think about that with a lot of bonding among the 18-year-old boys as someone who's going to have a couple 18-year-old boys, that there's a effort to ban football on fraternities on campuses. And certainly these institutions have their downsides. Yet for millennia and human history, 16, 17, 8-year-old boys love to hurl their bodies at each other yeah. and engage in rough physical play slash, you know, injury. Yeah. Something's yeah. going on. I want to ask you about that story. So the general thesis of that story, what is the phrase? It was about, it was the... Yeah, threshold, threshold models of behavior. That threshold models in your New Yorker story was an argument about why we're seeing so many more mass shootings. But in revisionist history, doesn't it show up to illustrate another point? I repurpose it. Yeah. 
to talk about Wilt Cham- why, Wilt, why basketball <laughs> players don't shoot underhanded. So this is an example of you have this idea and so many different um, phenomena play into it that you could use it in different ways. It, it's more than that. It's that I fell in love with it. I yeah, I do that too. And it's such an extraordinarily beautiful idea. I didn't want to just use it once to explain a pathology. I also wanted to just use it to explain all kinds of different behaviors. Because the problem is when you introduce an idea entirely in the context of a pathology, people dismiss the idea if they're not themselves pathological. They say, okay, this is a really good way of describing kids who want to engage in school shootings, so it never applies to me. Right. And my point is actually, no, it does apply to you in obviously less contentious contexts. So I wanted to bring it back and say, no, wait a minute. It also affected Wilt, poor Wilt Chamberlain, you know, when he shot his free throws. The last thing I wanted to ask you is, you're doing another season. From that, we can perhaps infer that this was a success, not just an artistic and journalistic success, but this was, uh, I think I've heard you say this was a success somewhat on par with the time it would take and the remuneration from doing a nonfiction book. Am I, no, is that close? No, no, no. 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 <laughs> Charity? <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, I mean, there is some hope that it will be reasonably, I mean, truth is, I don't make decisions about artistic decisions based on uh, decisions about what I do with my time based on money. Not how many late model BMWs you can afford? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Like, this is a 13-year-old right, BMW. Right. <laughs> it was, it's the least expensive BMW you can get. Um, no, I did it because it's fun and it's interesting. And I do think if you believe podcasting is in its infancy, then you do want to be trying stuff out and learning, getting you know, getting a seat at the table in at the beginning, in sort of you could be there when it explodes. I mean, one of the few data points I have in my life is who are the people who come up to me and say, I like X or did not like X, right? So I'm always interested in who they are. So there's all these like really interesting patterns to what is the kind of person who will stop me? Whenever I do something with Bill Simmons, there's a certain, you know who that guy is. Yeah. It's always a guy. Yeah. He's always between 25 and 30. And, you know, he's always wearing a T-shirt which has, which has a sports team on it. Yeah. You know, that's easy. Yeah. Sometimes a baseball hat's forward. Sometimes it's backwards. It's backwards. But I get yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. But the po- with the podcast, it is the striking thing and the obvious thing. It's all young people. And then I, I realized with my books, the p- kind of person who would come up and say, I loved your book, is 25 years older. Not always, but often. The average age. But with the podcast, it is just people in their late teens and 20s. It's it. And I just realized, you know, if you want to reach that audience, you don't have any choice, right? The books aren't doing it. They're not, they're not buying David and Goliath. So either, you know, if I don't change, then I lose my voice, right? No one, no one's going to care about Malcolm unless <laughs> Malcolm goes to them. I got to go where the people are. Malcolm Gladwell's new podcast, which first season's in the can, next season's going to happen, is called Re- Revisionist History. It's a great piece of nonfiction journalism and also apparently a uh, desperate psychological race against time and for relevancy. So that's good. That's good we found that out. Thank you so much for your time, Malcolm. Thank you. And now the spiel. On September 28, 1997, some news outlets were covering the admission before the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission that the apartheid government had forcibly killed Stephen Biko. 
At a Washington, D.C. press conference, President Clinton denied charges of influence peddling by associates, uttering a sentence that might sound strangely resonant to modern ears. I think when somebody makes a charge like that, there ought to be some burden on them to come forward with some evidence to substantiate their charge instead of saying, we'll make a charge, see if you can disprove it. That's not the way things work. And that's a pretty irresponsible charge to make without knowing having some evidence of it. And I'm just telling you, it's not so. If I were to tell you that 19 years, nine months in the future, there would be a presidential election and Hillary Clinton would be involved in that presidential election and sentiments uttered at a press conference on September 28th of 1997 would come into play, you would probably point to that press conference. You would be wrong because I'm pointing you to this one. Alicia is like me and like a lot of other people. I love to eat. We all love to eat. Not all of us. Some of you are lucky, but we eat. We like to eat. This is Donald Trump. He's standing next to a spandexed Alicia Mikado, and he is announcing that his Miss Universe will be put on a weight loss regimen. She had tremendous pressure put on her with the win and everything else. Plus, she was going from country to country, all foreign places, and there was a huge amount of pressure. And some people, when they have pressure, don't eat. And some people, when they have pressure, eat too much. Trump, after calling out some of the reporters assembled for being chubby, threw it to a trainer who he called very, very famous, though I can't figure out who the guy is. And this fitness guru detailed how the 20-year-old Mikado sitting there next to him, how much weight she would shed in a few months and how that weight would be perceived by millions upon millions of Miss Universe viewers. We, our goal is to get her between 125 and 130. She will look 118 to you and to the camera, 118. So we want to give, keep that soft, feminine look. So wait, 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 hold on. She'll weigh 125, but look 118? Tell me more, you Svengali of this stationary bike. How do you do your magic? Now, talking freely about a woman's weight with that woman right there, by a couple of men, that is now called fat shaming. Then it was called a quirky human interest story covered by dozens of news outlets. Jeannie Moose of CNN did the usual Jeannie Moose thing where she made a lot of puns about the universe expanding and Miss Universe expanding. By the way, Alicia Mikado sitting there looked fairly fit, quite beautiful in fact. Today, though, a different tone is required when talking about such issues. Sensibilities have changed. So when Donald Trump went on Fox, or as he calls it, the TV, and defended himself from back then, he came off sounding like the atavistic Cro-Magnon man that he is. She was the winner, and you know she gained a massive amount of weight, and uh, it, was, it was a real problem. But really, at the time, in 1997, there were few of us who weren't complicit. On CBS, where today I saw a segment criticizing Trump's fat shaming, on CBS then, there was a Trump and Mikado interview by Jose Diaz-Balart, who is now on MSNBC, where today I saw a segment criticizing Trump. Jose Diaz-Balart back then finished his interview with Trump and Mikado, and then he plugged an innovative bit of audience interaction that the CBS morning show would be reporting on the next day. And indeed, during the pageant that night, there was George Hamilton throwing it to Trump's soon-to-be ex-wife, Marla Maples, engaging in an early Trumpian stab at polling. On the Monday, we will have the results from that poll that we'll be taking tonight on CBS, whether you think it's important that the Miss Universe maintain a certain physical appearance. Right here on This Morning on Monday, we'll bring you the results of that poll. Now, all of this is crass showmanship. 
And I want to be clear that Barb's like calling Mikado Miss Piggy. That's just cruel. But I liken it to Hillary Clinton's statements about super predators. At the time, the phrase was a sharp one, but it wasn't as appalling as it plays to today's ears. And as far as Trump and Alicia Mikado back in 97, was he a bully or was he P.T. Barnum? And in a way, we're all to blame because we made a sport and a spectacle of that. The only relevance to today is that once more, it shows that Trump and his surrogates, when insulted, can be dragged into any dispute. Then again, who didn't know that? I'm thinking that it's possible that if you just consider the job beauty pageant owner, how Trump acted was possibly ethical, or at least in the upper half of how one might expect beauty pageant owners to act. Certainly, no one in the media or his partners at the network CBS called him out at the time. I also think that in the field, New York City real estate developer, Trump might be of at least average ethics. Maybe the lesson is that we shouldn't be drawing our presidential candidates from these particular talent pools. As a coda to this whole story, I take you back to 1997, where they asked that all-important question to the three finalists. Here's George Hamilton posing it first to Miss Venezuela. If there were no rules in your life for one day and you could be outrageous, what would you do? Now, Miss Venezuela answered she would travel. Miss Trinidad and Tobago said something about she would wear clothes. All right. But then Miss USA was asked the question. She answered, I would eat everything. <laughs> And that contestant, Brooke Lee, would go on to be crowned Miss Universe, receiving her tiara from the outgoing Miss Universe, Alicia Mikado, who looks stunning, though somehow may have weighed seven pounds more than she appeared. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson's Monopoly rules involve $200 if you land on free parking and an Elizabeth Warren-led investigation if you own all the railroads. Just producer Chris Berube is always the top hat, though that makes sense if you knew that in real life he outfits himself daily in cummerbunds. Bank error in the executive producer of Slate podcast Steve Lichtai's favor, actually not so much an error as quantitative easing. And Janet Yellen disputes the entire premise of that particular Monopoly award. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, wins a beauty contest, collects $10, develops an eating disorder, loses $65,000 in inpatient care. The gist. Tune in tomorrow when Cy Hirsch tells you when to split eights in blackjack and Atul Gawande handicaps which hippo might be the hungriest. Come on, it's Homer. Oomperu de peru de peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>